Julius and Ethel Rosenberg face Judge Kaufman. The issue of punishment in this case is presented in a unique framework of history. It is so difficult you to make people Ethel realize Rosenberg? Huh, Joe, huh? Maybe even read about her in the history books. Well, if it wasn't for me, Joe, Ethel Rosenberg would be alive today. Because during the trial, Joe, I was on the phone every day talking with the judge. Right. Every day doing what I do best. That sweet, unprepossessing woman. Two kids, boo-hoo-hoo. Reminded us all of our little Jewish mamas. She came this close to getting life. I'd have fucking pulled the switch myself if they left. Because I fucking hate traitors. Because I fucking hate communists. Was it legal? Fuck legal. Am I a nice man? Fuck nice. They say terrible things about me in the nation. Fuck the nation. You want to be nice or you want to be a friend? It is not in my power, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, to forgive you. You are hereby sentenced to the punishment of death. And hello! Welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we go entirely too deep in histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. You know, before we start off talking about our topic today, uh, I'd like to give a couple of acknowledgments. Uh, thank you to our new Patreon subscribers, Kit and Sarah. Woo! Thank you very much. You help us do our work and uh, buy <laughs> print books, among other things. Mm-hmm. We got a stack of them here topics like this. So what are we talking about today, Peter? Well, we are coming to our long-awaited, hotly anticipated conclusion of the main line of our look at the Rosenberg case. Uh, you know, when when Isaac and I were talking about starting this podcast, we were like, you know, we really need something that's uh, hip, that uh, the kids are into, and, you know, show that we have our fingers on the pulse. So what else could we do but the Rosenbergs? And I manically said, yes, we're doing the Rosenbergs. Yeah. In any event, we've been, this is this is the fifth episode. Uh, we've done a pretty deep dive, I think, into the background of the case in prior episodes. We get to know the Rosenbergs. We get to know others around the case. We know that uh, the case sort of began when uh, the Rosenbergs uh, brother or brother-in-law, depending on which Rosenberg we're talking about, uh, David Greenglass uh, snitched them to the federal government for conspiracy to commit espionage. We know that there was a trial with numerous advantages, shall we say, for the prosecution. The big advantage being perjury. Yeah, perjury is a pretty stacks good Stacks upon stacks of perjury. Also jury selection. <clears throat> Yeah. So all kinds of skullduggery going on. We are now here at what should be the midpoint of the trial, where the prosecution has rested. The defense of the Rosenbergs is going to begin, except uh, in certain respects, this really isn't the halfway point because we can't really look at the defense efforts and say that they amount to 
the effort put on by the prosecution. Do you want to explain why? Yeah, so the defense in this case really just puts on uh, two primary fact witnesses and then a couple of minor witnesses. And those would be Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. They testify both in their own defense. And I think it's helpful at this point to explain, because this is an episode we're going to go into, their attempt and failure to kind of counterattack the prosecution's case, that Julius and Ethel stole the secret of the atomic bomb, that Julius is a kind of uh, KGB spy master, essentially, a ringleader, a handler, and try to at least give the listener a sense of what their defense theory was. Because when this trial is wrapped up, they're sentenced to death that's when the real fights on this case begin mm-hmm. whether it's digging for evidence that prosecution's case from him or parts of it are lies mm-hmm. and attempts to get the public and leaders on board with trying to save their lives mm-hmm. to prevent the death sentence from being carried out spoilers they're they're sentenced to death anyways um <clears throat> so it, it helpful it's helpful at this point to talk about what the basic defense theory of the case is. Mm. Um, and that's what the, how lawyers will talk about. What is your theory of the case? What What is the thing that says that, you know, if you're a prosecutor, that person you're prosecuting did X and Y offense? The defense case here is a variation of um, what's often called the SODI defense, mm. which stands for S-O-D-D-I. Some other dude did it. Mm. In this case, just the green glasses. Mm-hmm. The key problem with the prosecution's case here is that it's really just based on two or three witnesses say so. Mm-hmm. Their defense case, no matter what, the Rosenbergs, is going to rest on saying that those two to three witnesses are lying. Mm-hmm. And they ha- the problem is, is that they don't have any things like mm-hmm. prior statements the green glasses made to the FBI or their lawyers or the grand jury that could be used to show that they're lying while they're on the stand. Mm. And that's why the defense is really fucked at this trial. Mm. So just to be clear, were they entitled to that stuff? So later on, the Supreme Court will create case law mm-hmm. that means that you says that you are entitled uh-huh. to that type of stuff. It eventually comes to be called Brady material after the case of Brady v. Maryland. Mm-hmm. We won't go into that. Mm. but. If a witness says something that's exculpatory, tends to show that mm-hmm. the case against them is wrong or mm-hmm. false or whatever, you do get entitled to that material mm-hmm. nowadays. One of the classic cases of prosecutorial misconduct that you see all the time with wrongful conviction cases, cases where the defendants eventually proven innocent, mostly, are cases where they just didn't disclose the Brady material, mm-hmm. often intentionally because it makes their case look bad. Mm-hmm. In this case, you have we've talked about how the green glasses had told different statements to the FBI, statements that especially showed that Ethel Rosenberg wasn't guilty, mm-hmm. including an outright denial that Ethel was involved in any of this by David Greenglass. Mm-hmm. None of those statements were turned over to the defense. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the statement, you can't question a witness on the stand and say, you're saying this now under oath, but look at what you told the FBI. Mm-hmm. Things that might cause a juror to doubt that they're saying the truth. So they're completely disarmed in that sense. So so, uh, so Brady, the Brady decision just wasn't there in time for the Rosenbergs. Doesn't happen until the Warren Court, baby. Oh, boy. So, so I guess it would help at this point to talk about the basic defense theory of the case. 
uh, which is either a variation of what defense lawyers call sodi, some other dude did it, i.e. the green glasses, or what defense attorneys also call their lie. And that is essentially, and Manny Block made this case in his opening statement, he makes a case again in his closing argument, that David and Ruth Greenglass, the Rosenberg's in-laws, are dirty, rotten, confessed spies. Because no one's going to contest that, right? Mm -hmm. It's the basis of their whole testimony. It's the basis of their testimony, that I am a dirty, rotten spy. My brother-in-law made me do that, be dirty, rotten spy. So that's why they're guilty. But they say David and Ruth are dirty, rotten spies. Therefore, they did a crime. Mm -hmm. They want to save their own skin. Mm -hmm. And the, being dirty, rotten spies, they lie all of the time. That's part of their work. And in this case, they lied to the FBI, the prosecutor, and now the jury under oath to save their own skin. But like I said, the problem is, is that without their prior statements to the FBI, to the grand jury, that are different than their trial testimony, he can't really show that well that they're lying, just that they have motive to lie. Right. So the best evidence that they can really put on, at least at the time of the trial, are Julius and Ethel themselves denying these claims. And Julius does this pretty well. I mean, at reading it at first, when Manny Block puts Julius Rosenberg on the stand to deny the accusations against him, he actually has a pretty good rhythm and he's unfazed, even when mm -hmm. Judge Kaufman uh, is intervening and directly <laughs> questioning, kind of cross-examining Julius Rosenberg like a prosecutor right. as his attorney is having him bring out these soft through softball questions, mm -hmm. his own story. And it starts out, out pretty well. Julius is a calm, collected witness, at least in the beginning of this direct examinations where his lawyer is asking the softball questions to bring out the testimony. And he's even cool under pressure when Judge Kaufman himself intervenes, kind of acts like a prosecutor and cross-examines Julius himself in the middle of this examination. And I mean in a very hostile way. He like asks these like, like, oh yeah, or hmm. gotcha questions that wow. no doubt signal to the jury that he, the judge, doesn't believe what the witness is saying. But he's careful. He doesn't go over the line and say he's lying or something hmm. like that. So Julius has asked this chorus of accusations, essentially, from David and Ruth Greenglass, and he answers each one of them with, I did not. So something like, did you give Ruth Greenglass $150 to hmm. use for espionage purposes? I did not. Hmm. You know, we should take Mike Mirapol's approach mm -hmm. to heart here and admit the times. Julius says a number of these I did nots to stuff that we know almost he certainly he did. Yeah. So he denies that he knew that David Greenglass had, was working on the atom bomb project at Los mm -hmm. Alamos. We know from David and Ruth's letters that that's untrue. Yeah. We also know that from Nona mm -hmm. and from Zillia of Notebooks. He denies that. Anyways. Some of these denials, however, are true. He's asked, for example, if David passed this sketch of the atomic bomb to him. He denies that. He says that didn't happen. He, he's asked if a number of meetings with David happened. And also specifically, he's asked about a lot of payoffs that David and Ruth said that he did, including one where he gave him $200. And that almost certainly was given to him by given to David Greenglass by David Greenglass's own KGB officer. So of course he would want to transfer responsibility from that to Julius because it makes him one degree removed at least from an actual Soviet spy handler. Mm. It makes him seem like he's a smaller part of this operation. That Julius denied and 
that is actually true. For most of these payoff questions, Julius didn't do a payoff to David. Mm -hmm. He was already out on his ass as an agent. Um, he wasn't working for the KGB, or at least he was frozen or suspended at the time, while David was receiving payoffs in the form of money, at least two that we know of, from KGB agents. Mm -hmm. And there's a pretty convincing uh, part of this, at least I would think so for a jury, where there's more denials. And Julius actually talks a bit about how broke he and Ethel were at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's not the picture you would get of a, you know, a Soviet paid right. agent. So, you know, normally spy. when they look at spies, like they're like, how did, where is this extra income right. coming from? Right. Like with Robert Hansen. Yeah. Like where was he getting the houses and the jewelry mm -hmm. for his wife? With Julius, there's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So from the transcript here, Manny Block asked Julius, did you tell Ruth or David Greenglass that you were entertaining and spending 50 or $75 a night in connection with your espionage work? I didn't tell Dave or Ruth Greenlass or anybody or anybody that. Mm -hmm. Did you ever entertain anybody or any espionage work? I did not. Tell me, how many suits have you bought for the last 11 years? <laughs> About five suits. Keep mm -hmm. in mind, a suit is what you wore these days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those days. No, it's not. It's, it's not like how much clothes now. you got. Did you come into court with a coat? Yes, sir. When did you buy that coat? I would say it was either 1941 or 1942. Did you ever buy a winter overcoat since then? Literally since World War II. <laughs> no, sir, I did not. How much did you pay for that coat? He estimates it's about $55. And this goes on. They also talk about the infamous console table, which Julius says he thinks he got right. about $21. Love that table. And notably, like everything that he talks about buying here is before he was trying to throw together this machine shop business with David mm. Greenlass. It's all during World War II when he and everyone around him is gainfully employed right. in the defense industry in this kind of quasi-socialist mm. yeah, command we, economy. See episodes one and two. Yeah. Mainly two, I think. But of course, what we do know is David was lying about getting all these payoffs from Julius, and the prosecution was lying to think that Julius had those. When he was doing the stuff during World War II, he was mm -hmm. doing it because he believed in helping right, the yeah. Soviets. And that's the missing piece of that part. Mm -hmm. But the next important part of Julius's testimony is kind of implicating why David would name him, right? Mm -hmm. So David's a spy. He has to save his own skin when he's captured by the FBI. Like, mm -hmm. a jury gets that, but that kind of begs the question of, all right, why... Why your brother-in-law? Yeah, why your brother-in-law, and then why your sister? Mm -hmm. Right? Really, you sold out your own sister to, mm -hmm. save, to save your skin when no one would have known about that otherwise? At least mm -hmm. that's what the jury thinks. And this... So Julius gives a bit of the history of how he came to realize David was in trouble. And there's, there's some half-truths here. Like, this is... This is a history where some of these statements, I think, actually happened. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's definitely right. not it's the whole to, story. Hard to tell. Yeah. So as we described on episode three, the pit machine shop, that business that Julius Rosenberg and David Greenglass had, mm -hmm. it was failing in this kind of faltering post-war economy before the Korean War. Mm -hmm. David couldn't get his shares back, or at least couldn't get the money back for his shares in this little business, so he starts hating Julius. And they even had some heated arguments or mm -hmm. fights about mm -hmm. this that were witnessed by David's brother. Mm. And it's this kind of animosity that is still in David's head, and Ruth's head, mm -hmm. uh, when the FBI comes around asking about so maybe some stolen uranium that David mm -hmm. might have taken from Los Salamos. Mm -hmm. So Julius points out that, or Julius states when he's testifying, that 
in February of 1945, before the war's over and when David's working in Los Alamos, Ruth, David's wife, came to him and said, I think that David's uh, d about to do something very risky. Mm -hmm. He's talking about making money by taking stuff off, taking some things off the base. And Julius, in his own thing, says, mm -hmm. uh, tell David not to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm of two minds about this. You know, I, I talked on, on one of our episodes about how Walter and Miriam Schneer actually found out that the green glasses seem to have a lot of payments and a lot of deposits of money that aren't accounted for, mm -hmm. even now from spying. Spy right. payments, and I do think that in that time of wartime rationing, it's uh -huh. very possible that a kind of a schemer guy mm. like David Greenglass was might have taken some gas, some right. tires, some, bacon. <laughs> some some slabs of bacon yeah. off the base where they were readily available, mm -hmm. and sold them out in Albuquerque right. or Santa Fe or wherever. So I could see Ruth saying, in addition to our spy work that we're mm. doing we're for a good pilfering. cause. David wants to sell stuff off the base, and I feel like that's not a good idea. And if mm. you were a spy like Julius was, you absolutely would have told him, right. no, don't do that. Yeah. That's exposure. Yes. That'll get you caught, which it did. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so the FBI comes around asking about this uranium in Julius's account. And then months later, David comes around Julius's machine shop and says, I'm in trouble. He confronts Julius. He says he needs $2,000 right now. Mm -hmm. He won't say what he needs it for. And he also asks Julius, like, hey, um, can you get your doctor to write me a smallpox vaccination? Because I need that to get to Mexico. Mm -hmm. To which Julius says, why? He says, I can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. According to this testimony. Julius, however, thinks about this and he puts this together with what he heard from David about the FBI asking about uranium. And he thinks, oh, Man, David might be some real trouble. Yeah. He might have stolen stuff off the base right. and sold and it. Not just, not necessarily just uh, tires. Right. But uh, the big stuff that you really, really, really can't steal. Mm -hmm. And then he has a further confrontation with David where he says, if you don't get me that money, you're going to be sorry. Mm. So I actually think that some of these things happen. <laughs> right. Uh, I think there was a confrontation about getting money because... From the files that we know, we know that Julius asked David to leave the country. Mm -hmm. And David said, not before you give me some money. Because David had $3,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. So Julius did get him that money yeah. from the Soviets. But it, it's an interesting because it's able to put pull into the picture things that probably happened. Right. Along with uh, denials of things that did. Right. Or at least, you know, explanations for the things where there's more witnesses to it than mm -hmm. David and Ruth Greenglass. So at this point, this is a fairly convincing story. You got two spies. They implicate Julius and Ethel because of animosity towards Julius. That mm -hmm. bastard wouldn't give me my money. Right. I hate him, etc. It's not the most convincing motive because why would he put his sister right. in there? And this is why, like, frankly, more convincing explanations of why David and Ruth did what they did came later on mm. when people are re-examining the, the case. But what really screws Julius's testimony here is he gives an explanation for why he would defend the Soviet Union and, mm. you know, maybe make some statements that were sympathetic. Mm -hmm. But then he begins invoking the Fifth Amendment right as he's questioned. So on direct examination, when he's talking to the jury and 
through questions from his attorney, Mandy Block, he says, when he's asked about the Soviet Union and what he would have said back then during World War II, Julia says, I felt that the Soviet government had improved a lot of the underdog there and made a lot of progress in eliminating literacy, has done a lot of reconstruction work and built up a lot of resources. And the same I felt that they contributed their major share in destroying the Hitler beast, which exterminated six million of my Mm co-religionists. That means a lot to me, Mm -hmm. he says. Now... When the prosecutor, mm-hmm. Irving Saypol, gets up for cross-examination, he doesn't go into any of these events as described right away. Instead, two questions, he just starts by asking about his CCNY classmates. Mm-hmm. And two questions in, Julius invokes the Fifth Amendment. Mm-hmm. And there is very little that you can do to destroy your credibility before a jury mm-hmm. to make it seem like you're lying then say, I'm not going to answer that question on the grounds it may incriminate me. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, people talk about the Fifth Amendment, like it's this, and, and obviously it is good that you can't be compelled to testify against yourself, but it has this, it seems to have this kind of opposite effect of harming your defense. There's very little things you can do to, to seem like you're lying than say, I'm not going to answer that question because it might implicate me in a crime. Which is why you can't be compelled to testify. You usually invoke that right by not actually getting up on there on the stand. But right. it, yeah, it really screws you. I mean, Patty Hearst did the same thing. She got yeah. up on the stand, she gave her story, and then when she got in trouble, she just started invoking the Fifth yeah. Amendment, and that destroyed her case. Yeah. The same thing happens here with both Julius, and when Ethel gets up to testify, she largely corroborates Julius. She describes similar events that she was present for. She oh, describes right. a conversation where... Julius came to her and said, I think David's in a lot of trouble. But when asked by the prosecutor and by the judge, mm-hmm. who's supposed to be this impartial yeah. friend of the jury, uh-huh. gets the facts out, why she was invoking the Fifth Amendment, she just tangles up, completely gets tangled up in this. She's also asked, you know, why'd you invoke the Fifth Amendment before the jury and not answer their questions mm-hmm. if you're not invoking the Fifth Amendment now and answering the government's questions? Mm-hmm. And today you can't be compelled to answer that. Mm-hmm. You actually can't even ask a question about why they took the Fifth Amendment yeah. before the grand jury. Is that another proceeding. Warren Court thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder that Chuds, Chuds of a legal history that hate the Warren Court so much. Yeah, John Birch is saying he had a campaign to get him impeached. Wow. Have billboards up that. Mm. So this is where, frankly, I, I think we can say that Rosenberg's defense really just crashes and burns. It's, it's mm-hmm. not on... You know, uh, the prosecutor really pulling out some kind of uh, Perry Mason moment where Mm. he proves through a piece of evidence that they're lying. It's because he was asking questions repeatedly about friends of theirs, people they knew, trying to get them to name names or implicate them as being communists. Mm. And this is what gave rise to the whole notion that this was a political trial, because in a large respect it was. The prosecutor was just trying to show they are communists, therefore they stole secrets, and therefore they gave those secrets to the Soviet Union. That's what they would want to do. Right. I'm not sure how they would have gotten out of this mind. Had they just admitted that they were communists or members of the Communist Party, I think that the prosecutor would have then gotten them to name names and then drawn up indictments for those people. Oh, yeah. Well, they could have said they were Trotskyites. Except for those cursed Trotskyites. Yeah. So the prosecution, after the defense rested with Julius Nathal, was allowed to bring in rebuttal witnesses. Mm -hmm. 
And they bring in one witness who I think the defense wise right to think that they're just a plant. Part of the prosecution's case is that Julius asked David to go ahead and get his passport photos taken in order to flee the country. Mm-hmm. And that Julius similarly would have had his passport photos taken, one would think, because being the spy master, why wouldn't he also flee the country? In fact, it would be strong evidence that he's not involved in espionage if he's not fleeing the country and everybody mm-hmm. else is. Mm-hmm. But no such photographer had turned up at that point. The FBI gets a tip from their jailhouse informant slash fabricator drone, Eugene Tartico, who I hope to do an episode about. Mm-hmm. Bonus episode, folks. You gotta pay us. <laughs> who is sitting in jail with Julius, listening to him, playing chess with him, and so on. And so Tartico tells the FBI, and with no prompting, supposedly, even though it's almost certainly the case the FBI agents were like, did Julius say anything about passport photos? Mm. And then Tartico came up with, you know, Julius was really curious the other day if it was possible for the FBI to search all of the photography places and find a photographer who took their photos. He was mm. wondering if, as a photographer, later rest on many counts of pornography, mm. <laughs> including child pornography, mm-hmm. If as a photographer, I uh, I knew if the FBI could do that. Mm. So uh, taking this lead, this hot lead, the FBI mm. then supposedly canvassed passport photo taking place and found one that was conveniently very close to the fully square courthouse that where the convenient. trial took place. Now, I have to say, at first when I read this, I thought that, well, like just happens to be next to the courthouse. Like, why would the Rosenbergs go there? But mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I did walk from 10 Morton Street to the Foley Square Courthouse almost by accident. It's like a 10-minute walk. Oh, okay. But still, yeah. this is very convenient for the prosecutors. Yes. So they bring in this guy, this uh, this ringer, mm-hmm. um, a definitely truthful witness who I'm sure only wants to participate in this uh, extremely public case for it's the a, best of reasons. He's a citizen crime fighter. Yeah, yeah. So... He testifies that he did take Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's passport photos, presumably to help them flee the country. Mm-hmm. But uh, can, you, can you guess what, uh, what evidence he has of that, Peter? I mean, I assume, I assume he has like a receipt. Nope. All right. Well, that's, that's not disqualifying because he's a photographer, so he'd have photographic negatives of their faces. No. Ah. Oh, well, got it like a sign-in sheet. You gotta nope. Sign- oh, what? What? <laughs> I don't know about this. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, he says he remembers this specific day because he wasn't normally open during that time. They kind of mm. Julius and Ethel just kind of clamored in. Mm. Uh, yes, as you do. Yeah. So this didn't happen. Yeah. Um, w- were they even trying to get themselves out of the country at that point? So not as much. So from what we have from the Soviet archives, they were really trying to get David out of the country. Right. It's not as if he wasn't trying to assist David getting out of the country. He got him a cash drop. He was going to do another dead drop Uh of money at some later point. But there's not. And there are some like vague some plans of like if this doesn't work out, if we can't get David's wife out, Julius and David might just have to go on their own, send for their wives later. Mm-hmm. But there's no evidence in the archives that Julius actually took steps to leave the country. Right. Because it was it was David who they were going after first. Right. David was the next he, link yeah. in the chain to Klaus from Fuchs. what the FBI yeah, from what the FBI had found before with Klaus Fuchs and Harry Gold. Yeah. So at the close of the evidence on this case, after that uh, ringer testimony, mm-hmm. not that it was 
terribly important by this point. Right. This jury of, uh, as we said before, American Legion members, uh, friends of the FBI, auditors, estimators. Mm -hmm. All American types. All American types. Find Julius and Ethel guilty of conspiracy to commit espionage. There was a, a dissenting view uh, from one of the jurors mm. who actually happened to be a, uh, a former union member mm. himself as to whether that the jury should plead and recommend mm -hmm. for Ethel to be spared the death penalty. Because mm -hmm. as the judge informed them, however, uh, Judge Kaufman told them that the death sentence and any sentence was not within their power. Mm -hmm. No recommendation would be done by them or considered. Mm -hmm. So with that taken out, they were just supposed to find the factual question of whether they were guilty or not guilty. Mm -hmm. They found guilty. And a week later, Judge Kaufman, the member of the prosecution team, essentially <laughs> pronounced his sentence on the case. Kaufman said at, his at the sentencing of Julius and Ethel, quote, because of the seriousness of this case and the lack of precedence, I have refrained from asking the government for recommendation. In other words, he says that he's making this decision himself. He mm -hmm. hasn't asked anyone for a recommendation. Search his conscience. Yes, he searches conscience, consults his family, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, he had asked... Irving Sable, the lead prosecutor on the case mm -hmm. for recommendation, he asked Roy Cohn, mm -hmm. Donald Trump's future lawyer, for, yeah. and also on the prosecution team for recommendation. He asked J. Edgar Hoover for recommendation, and he asked two other judges for recommendations. I don't imagine he asked Manny Block. No, and that's exactly the, the issue here, is if people are making recommendations, they submit documents to the court, mm -hmm. and then the defense can argue against those. They can yes. say, that point is wrong. That, yeah. that thing that you said was evidence is untrue. Mm -hmm. Kaufman, by saying and lying, just yes. openly lying in court and saying that he didn't ask for a recommendation, immunizes all of them against that. Mm -hmm. And when a judge gives a sentence, they're supposed to give reasons in the sworn testimony, the facts of the case, the evidence for why they're pronouncing that sentence. Mm -hmm. If it's something like a death sentence, you know, it might be something like it should be something along the lines of what made this murder. Right so bad right why there isn't any mitigation mm -hmm. but judge kaufman's sentence his sentencing statement is absolutely insane so and here's the relevant part he says in open court i consider your crime worse than murder plain deliberate contemplated murder is dwarfed in magnitude by comparison with the crime you have committed in committing the act of murder the criminal only kills his victim the immediate family is brought to grief and when justice is meted out the chapter is closed but in your case i believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea hmm. with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000 and who knows what millions more of innocent people may pay the price of your treason. Indeed, by your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. He literally says they caused the korean war yikes yeah well you know you're not you're not supposed to do that cause korean wars yeah and, and harold uri the um nobel prize winning physicist who worked on the manhattan project is in the audience at this point mm -hmm. and up to this time he's been very agnostic on the question of their guilt leaning towards maybe julius and ethel guilty and when he hears some of the evidence about oh, they stole the secret atomic bomb, mm -hmm. he starts getting increasingly skeptical about the case because he knows you can't do that. Right. 
it's he not knows a, the secret. It's not a thing that you can you can just write down on paper and you've got it. Right. And this death sentence to him comes across as an absolute absurdity. It just a horrific bullshit statement on the mm. record. They didn't cause the Korean War. They didn't even steal the secret of the atomic bomb. Right. Even if they were guilty. Mm-hmm. And as Marshall Perlin, who becomes the attorney for the Rosenberg sons, Michael Mirapol and Robert Mirapol later on, says more people than you would think thought they were guilty, but thought this death sentence was cruel, unusual, excessive, mm-hmm. and even absurd. Klaus Fuchs, accused of, of really stealing atomic yeah. secrets and found guilty of it. He's given time in prison. He's mm-hmm. not given a lifetime in prison. He's mm-hmm. given time in prison, and he lives out his life in yeah. East Germany until the he released in the fifties and gets out and mm-hmm. stays there in, until he grows old. So, so, it, and that was the British, in yeah. that sense. So, what was so different? Why, why the need to pin all of this on the Rosenbergs and have them pay with their lives? They think by this point. They need, even if they were guilty of what they were accused of, the nation needed a true scapegoat for this stab in the back. Why was it that the Soviet Union now had the power of the atomic bomb? Mm-hmm. Couldn't have been because their system allowed them to develop it as such. It had to have been mm-hmm. betrayal, a stab in the back. And I think I showed you there was even a demonstrator, a, a Rosenberg's must get killed, yeah. <laughs> pro death sentence demonstrator who had a sign that, that said they stabbed us in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. You know, I, I should say, Peter, that explains why people in the American public and mm-hmm. even people like the president would have supported the death penalty in this case. But it's not really why it was brought about so mm-hmm. definitively here. And that reason is because the death penalty was going to be torture device mm-hmm. that would put maximum pressure on Julius and they also sort of believed Ethel, even though they knew that Julius was one more likely to have information, to talk, to implicate other leftists, other former CCNY classmates, and have kind of have an expanding circle of espionage suspects that could themselves be put under the knife and implicate others until you round up the entire Communist Party and anyone right. associated with them, fellow travelers and the like. In that respect, I guess Ju- there's a grain of truth to what Julius said in a public letter about the death sentence. He said, this death sentence is not surprising. It had to be. There had to be a Rosenberg case. There had to be a Rosenberg case because there had to be an intensification of the hysteria in America to make the Korean War acceptable to the American people. There had to be a hysteria and a fear sent through America in order to get increased war budgets. And there had to be a dagger thrust in the heart of the left to tell them that you were no longer going to get five years for a Smith Act prosecution or one year for a contempt of court, presumably for not talking and implicating other leftists. Mm-hmm. But we're going to kill you, mm-hmm. Julius says. In that case, you know, the death sentence passed on Ethel is important, not just because maybe she has information, but as a way to get Julius to talk. Exactly. If you don't talk, I'm not just going to kill you, you, you revolutionary martyr, we're going to kill your wife. Mm. Your kids aren't going to have a mother. Yeah. And that was held over Julius's head as well. So after this death sentence was pronounced, one should say the, the, the Communist Party you know, doesn't come to Julius and Ethel's rescue. Mm. They've already completely divested themselves from this case because any, they're, they're already facing potentially being made entirely illegal. 
The Smith Act prosecutions that have already been going on since the late 40s are, have put most of their leadership in prison, and many of them won't get out of prison until the late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. They're facing the prospect that most of their membership might be put in prison in their view. So the last thing they want to do is be implicated in espionage or in supporting, seem, being seen to support espionage. But this kind of gives this opening for something that I feel like is a, is a forerunner of kind of new left, non- mm. Communist Party, non-party affiliated, left-wing politics uh, in the form of a bunch of, uh, as Mike Mirapol calls them, mavericks. Um, So the husband and wife team of Emily and David Allman really are at the forefront of founding the Committee to Secure Justice in the Rosenberg case, which comes about as Emily Allman, who lived in the same building as Julius and Atha Rosenberg, Knickerbocker Village, begins reading about the case from an article that was published by a journalist named William Rubin for a long since uh, defunct newspaper called The National Guardian, which was kind of an independent left-wing newspaper, non-communist affiliated, but still very left-wing. And his essential argument at that time was that David had motive to lie, Ruth had motive to lie, and the entire case rests on their testimony. There's reasonable explanations for everything Julius and Ethel did. So this, there's major doubts about this case. Not conclusive proof of innocence, but you should doubt this case. And when she saw that, she started up a, a group which was joined by a load of non-sectarian, old left people, people who had been expelled from the Communist Party in the case of, or who had left in the case of David Allman, her husband, and others, some of them trade unionists, some of them lawyers, some kind of sympathetic religious types who were either appalled by the death penalty on the case or had doubts about the verdict. And the last thing you want to do is allow a death sentence to go forward when there's doubts about the case. Mm-hmm. One of their more famous signs on, on pickets and everything was the death penalty can't kill the doubts about the Rosenberg case. Mm. So their goal was to win support for a new trial or as a second goal, as the, the minimum goal, to get clemency and commutation of the death sentence, to save Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's life. And from the beginning, they kind of had a two-front war, which is tr- how to generate even the public pressure that you would need to get someone like Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower to commute the death sentence. Mm-hmm. You had to actually educate the public about the case. Right. Because as far as the public knew, Julius and Ethel were two communists found guilty on a load of evidence Mm -hmm. that had been examined by the best law enforcement agency in the country, the FBI, which doesn't make mistakes, and they're guilty. They're super guilty. Mm -hmm. Not only they're guilty, but they're guilty of giving the secret of the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union, who were now fighting the Korean War. So they're basically enemies of everyone. That's the most the the public, at least, knew about the case, unless they were readers of the National Guardian and maybe one other paper. Yeah. So first they had to try to educate the public about that Mm -hmm. and bring forward evidence by making pamphlets, by handing out newspapers, by holding what would later be called teach-ins, like like seminars about the case, and demonstrations where they would talk about major doubts about the case. But as this built from 1951 all the way leading up to the execution in 1953, they began having demonstrations, mm-hmm. round-the-clock pickets of the White House to try to get clemency and exert this public pressure. They were calling up congressmen. And this became really a grassroots citizens movement. Yeah. Most of their money didn't come from any kind of like 
large trade union coffers, let alone the Communist Party. It was from people sending in like one dollar, right. five dollars. Yeah, it's pretty amazing given coins, know, right. envelopes. Oh yeah, it's pretty amazing given the you know the coverage of the trial that they got as many people as they did. You know, because it's just such a as someone who's done like flyering and stuff, it seems like such a zero proposition. Like, hey, you want to help these convicted spies that you've been hearing the whole time or, or just dirty spies? You want to help them out? They're, they're actually innocent. And like, it just seems like such an uphill battle. But it seems like they accomplished a fair amount, at least in terms of getting I, grassroots going. I mean, they got tens of thousands of people on the streets Yeah. in, in demonstrations. Yeah. And... When they started doing this kind of work, Communist Party officials came up to him, David Allman, and basically told him to knock it off. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making you're making this hard for us. Yeah, we don't want to be a part of this. Yeah, that isn't to say that individual Communist Party members weren't sympathetic for what they saw was that two comrades got railroaded mm-hmm. and are going to be murdered by the state. I mentioned that this is a two front war. One front was public pressure, which has that all uphill battle. Mm-hmm of getting the public to have the knowledge about the case. The other front is the legal front, that Manny Block is trying to appeal this case, and they actually do a fair bit of essentially kind of detective work, or at least publicity work on behalf of the work of others, about new evidence that's eventually found in this case. And they're actually responsible in, in a not minor way for eventually finding two huge pieces, like bombshell pieces mm-hmm. of evidence at the final hour. Mm that introduced a lot of doubts about the prosecution case. Um, So it's probably worth talking, and I'll try not to get too legal nerd about this, how the defense tried to win a new trial first off. So you have the first set of appeals, and that's at that time, those are the only appeals that they're truly entitled to, where you're just appealing from the verdict of the trial court to a higher court. And this process takes a while from about the pronouncement of the verdict, so April 5th, 1951, all the way to about, really all the way up until about May 25th of 1953 with this first round there and round back of appeals up to the Supreme Court. And something important to note about these rounds of appeals, the Supreme Court never actually heard the case. Mm -hmm. So they never had someone argue about the merits of the case and whether the evidence was actually sufficient at trial to convict these people. What they heard, let me back up, something to know about the Supreme Court. They don't have to hear any case. They can just let whatever happens at the circuit court level and the trial courts do whatever they want. They try to hear cases to settle causes or controversies. Mm -hmm. And the way they decide whether they hear a case is someone presents them with what's called a writ of certiorari. And all that has to happen is four of the nine justices vote to grant Mm -hmm. that writ. Yeah. And then they get to hear the case. Okay. So, so when a when a trial lawyer is like, we're taking this all the way to the Supreme Court, unless they've got you know some sort of like you said, like a cause or like a, there's there's some constitutional relevance to what their case is, it's probably not going to get those four votes to get put before the Supreme Court, unless they've got right. like political juice or something. Right. Of course, you would think that the most controversial case in not just the country but the world right. would get that. But there's a a fair amount of cowardice on the part of the Supreme Court. And what I learned by reading about this case, and in particular, I owe uh, a debt to uh, a book I 
a guy named uh, Bradley Snyder called Taking Great Cases, Lessons from the Rosenberg Case. And also he put out a biography recently of Justice Felix Frankfurter, mm -hmm. is that this group of people on the Supreme Court uh, were a bunch of backstabby, gossipy little shits. Yeah, not exactly these uh, giants of of legal uh, majesty, you know, like Brett Kavanaugh. There's a lot of nostalgia for a time when the Supreme Court weren't co like complete political hacks. And mm -hmm. here's the thing, the Supreme Court had a fair amount of political hacks right. on there at the time, but in many instances, they were political hacks for the political party of themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court at that time was headed by a justice called uh, Fred Vinson. Vinson along with a couple of other justices, well, three other justices, had kind of a clique, a party of his own in the Supreme Court that was re widely referred to and derided as Harry Truman's law firm. Because mm. whatever Harry Truman, the president, wanted at that time, they would rule in his favor. Interesting. Overwhelming majority of the Supreme Court at the time had been appointed by FDR and were New Dealers at one time or another, but mm. that New Deal coalition really ran the gamut from right, right. to left, especially when it came to questions of legal procedure and what mm -hmm. a judge could do at trial or what a police or prosecutor could do to you. Mm -hmm. Kind of holding the, what I could call like the, the consistent left winger wing, in, in this case to some degree, was uh, Jewish Justice Felix Frankfurter. Mm -hmm. I always found the name funny. Yeah, right. So Frankfurter himself kind of is distinguished by the fact that he was a huge public campaigner to save the life and overturn the verdicts of Sacco and Vincetti mm -hmm. before they were executed. And really, he played a huge part in swinging elite opinion mm. and educated opinion on that case towards thinking that Sacco and Vincetti were innocent, or at least that they were denied a fair trial. Mm -hmm. And even though, by all accounts, Frankfurter believed that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were probably guilty, actually, he believed that they were definitely guilty, and that the case wasn't the same as Sacco and Vincetti, he still plays a big part in saying they didn't receive a fair trial, at least in private among the justices. And he does fight the most to try to get them, get their case heard at the Supreme Court level. Mm -hmm. That effort ultimately fails. So one of the people who actually, you know, at the time got a lot of praise and has since been found to be kind of a prima donna, manic pixie dream judge, I don't know what you call <laughs> Was William O. Douglas, he's kind of a hero to liberals, mm. especially, you know, legal nerd liberals. Yeah. William Douglas, as it happens behind the scenes, seems to be seeking out. I'm going to try to advance this theory. William Douglas wanted to be able to vote to have the case heard in the Supreme Court, the Rosenberg case, but wanted there to be enough votes against that it wouldn't matter. Ah, OK. And so he, he wanted to be that third vote. You want to be the third vote without and, there being a fourth, and, and to go, oh no! Yeah, uh, the problem was is that there consistently were three other votes. Right. It's it's worth clarifying something before I go into this, which is there's two things that these judges have the ability to do here at the Supreme Court. They have the ability to grant certiorari and hear the case, hear actually all the merits of the case, and examine the trial record. And they also have the ability, and even just one justice can do this to grant a stay of execution, hmm. to hit the pause button on the death clock. Any Supreme Court justice can do that. Yes. Independent of the others. Yeah, and I mean, that, that exists now. So hmm. right now, there's a, a justice that's assigned to each region of the country. Oh. 
essentially each fe- a well, supreme court justice. Yeah, well, they're assigned to a federal circuit yeah. district huh. to hear cases brought to them for uh, just a stay or a pause in the execution clock. Huh. If something new has been discovered right. or if there's some mitigating circumstance that should be brought before the court, there's always that possibility that a supreme court justice. Although often with like the Fifth Circuit, which carries out a lot of the executions, right? Uh, it's a very conservative justice hits the pause button. On and that how do clock. they choose who's in charge of which circuit? And that I think varies yeah. from court. To court. Okay, yeah. Who's to say? Yeah. So, so it's just magic. It's so they just. I, I'm sure someone actually has an answer. There's a sorting hat. People who specialize in capital defense cases, which I certainly never even got close to that. Um, have them all put on the sorting robe. <laughs> You get to go to Texas. Some ghoul conservative judge like Lito being like, yes. So in this first round of appeals, the Rosenberg's lawyers, uh, Manny Block heading the team, identified three basic issues that they said that the higher court should vacate the verdict of the trial court for it. So first they have to bring this to Judge Kaufman again for him to laugh at them and deny their motion. And then they can go up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals before hopefully taking the Supreme Court. There are three issues were that Judge Kaufman himself improperly questioned witnesses, which he did, although he kind of sort of stayed in the bounds. Mm. The second issue was that they couldn't be sentenced to death under the Espionage Act because they weren't doing anything to harm the United States. They, Russian, rather, the Soviet Union and the United States were allies at the right. time that all of the espionage led to trial happened. Mm-hmm. And three, their death sentences violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment because they were portrayed as traitors to mm-hmm. the United States, but they weren't given the protections of the treason clause. In other words, they said they had committed treason, but the treason clause in the United States Constitution actually says all the requirements that a prosecutor has to prove in order to actually find someone guilty for treason. So to clarify a little bit, because I know this is confusing, the Constitution says that treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, against the United States, or in adhering, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort, no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or a confession in open court. Mm. In other words, something historical about this is the British like to prosecute something called constructive treason, mm-hmm. where anything that kind of inhibited or messed with the operation of the British state right. was also a little bit treason. Yeah. And there was this... Henry VIII liked that one. Yeah. yeah. There's this ever-expanding definition of treason. You can see how under that definition you could start expanding treason to include things like a railway strike. Yep. Or um, making fun of a congressperson yeah. or threatening them doesn't just become an, a crime, <laughs> uh, if that is a crime but treason which can lead to death yes back in the old days really spectacular death yeah there's actually some merit to that argument but it's as you can tell because i've had to explain it three times to even get across myself Uh that is a very deep in the text legally one Uh can't expect judges to pay attention to that no although three justices supreme court actually did like this argument felix frankfurter hugo black and uh, Judge Burton. Uh. And in 1952, Justice Jackson, who kind of operated as, as one of the two swing votes here, the other one being Prima Donna William Douglas, Judge Jackson uh, granted a stay of execution 
mm-hmm. on the basis of this argument. Mm-hmm. Not any of the arguments that are going to come later on that are very much sexier and more interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll say. Stay tuned, folks. Harry Truman's law firm, the rest of the court, uh, called themselves in a session and overruled Justice Jackson and the small Frankfurter dissenting group and got rid of the stay because mm-hmm. you can four votes can get you heard before the Supreme Court, but it's not enough to pause the clock on the execution if the rest of the Supreme Court votes against you. Uh, Feel free to ask me what I mean. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So to clarify... Uh, this is some Holy Roman Empire-ass shit. This is just stupid. Yeah. As a side note, there, there was a little, um, a little skullduggery going behind the scenes in the Supreme Court in addition to this kind of high school musical chair stuff of, of how many votes they got for this or that, mm-hmm. which is Judge Jackson, who was somewhat sympathetic to granting some kind of a hearing to the Rosenbergs, although he consistently voted against hearing the case. He wanted to stay the clock and not have them executed, maybe for other courts to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Had a clerk by the name of William Rehnquist. Ah, we know that one. A, a smart whippersnapper of a young man at the time, and it turns out, as I learned from this case, in addition to being a conservative judge, was an absolute bloodthirsty ghoul. Mm. So, in addition to writing, you know, a legal memo about, you know, why the court should grant a stay or deny a stay, he, in fighting to some extent with Justice Jackson, his boss, wrote in a memo, it is too bad that drawing and quartering has been abolished in the case of the Rosenbergs. Mm. He also said, I think I would recommend a deny, as in deny hearing the case, if the trial judge had refused them a hearing on allegations that they had been put on the rack before trial. In other words, even if they are... Right, have literally been, tortured. Even if they've been literally tortured. In other words, if justice had been totally done, he would still want to deny hearing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you feel like if... Uh, you feel like he was probably walking around with those uh, medieval torture references in his back pocket just waiting for the opportunity to use them. His, like, William Rehnquist one-liners. So to our, um, to our Zoomers in the audience, yeah. <laughs> uh, William Rehnquist later becomes the judge of Supreme, chief judge of the Supreme Court yes. and is, stays that all the way until the George W. Bush administration. Right. Among other things, he uh, oversaw the court during the uh, Bush v. Gore decision, which uh, handed the, the presidency to George W. Bush, essentially because conservatives wanted to and liberals weren't going to fight them enough on it. So Certainly not in the streets. They thought this would play out all in the court. Yeah. Yeah. Should have stopped him here. More public pressure built thanks to the efforts of the committee to secure justice in the Rosenberg case and mm-hmm. all of that hard 
shoe leather, actual organizing work done by the Almonds and many, many others mm -hmm. working for them, especially in major cities like New York and so on. And this public pressure becomes particularly big, however, abroad, much like mm. with the earlier Sacco and Vincetti case. In other countries, the imminent execution of the Rosenbergs is seen in particular as almost like kind of a replay of the Nazi era mm. in which a sham trial with possibly perjured testimony mm -hmm. is used to send, uh, sorry, two Jewish people mm -hmm. uh, to the electric chair. And that's particularly the case in France where the Rosenberg case is a massive, massive cause celeb. And that actually means that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, in particular because of the history with the Dreyfus case mm -hmm. and the Dreyfus affair. You might do a series on that one one of these days. Maybe one of these days. So abroad, at one point, the non-communist but still very left-wing Parisian newspaper called Le Combat mm. receives a couple of items in an envelope. The editorial board of Le Combat, of course, has been raising the doubts about the Rosenberg case, but in this envelope comes two pieces of evidence that appear to directly show that the green glasses are lying. And these two pieces of evidence come to be known as the Rogue Papers. Mm -hmm. O'John Rogue, of course, was the attorney for David Greenglass. Yes. He was his attorney and also for Ruth Greenglass. Mm -hmm. One of them is what's called at the time photostat, kind of like a copier or a mm -hmm. Xerox, of a handwritten memo that is in David Greenglass's own handwriting. Mm -hmm. And among other things, he says that he agreed to say things or leave things written in an FBI statement that he did not remember. Mm. In other words, that he agreed to allow some things that weren't true to be put in that statement. Mm -hmm. In this handwritten note or document by David Greenglass, or would appear to be by David Greenglass, he also laid out approximately what he had told the FBI. And notably, Julius Rosenberg was barely implicated. David only said that he was, quote, that he told the FBI he was, quote, very close to this situation. And Ethel was not mentioned by David to the FBI as doing anything at all. Mm. In other words, the trial testimony was all false. Yeah. But additionally, the rogue papers also contained a memo written by Herbert Fabricant, who was an attorney at John Rogue's, O. John Rogue's law firm. Mm. Herbert Fabricant says that he visited the offices of the FBI and that he met with David Greenglass and that David Greenglass had, among other things, told him that he made a number of confusing statements purposely in order to confound the FBI and draw attention from his wife, who was in the hospital. Mm. His wife apparently originally told him that his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, had suggested this. So I fail to see how his mind operated in connection with keeping his wife out of the picture. He told me that Julius Rosenberg was apparently very close to the situation. Julius had once introduced me to a man in a car somewhere. Rogue papers also contain a memo from an attorney who very early on had interviewed Ruth Greenglass. So way before she's testified at the grand jury and before really she's even talked to the FBI. And she said to that attorney in confidence, David would say things or so even if they're not and had a tendency to hysteria. Mm. And this uh, formed the basis of my favorite picket sign from the Committee to Secure Justice of the Rosenberg case and giant 
letters, my husband is a hysteric and a liar, Ruth Ringlass, <laughs> which you just like want to be really specific about the yeah. issue you're talking about in this case. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. So the Committee to Secure Justice the Rosenberg case is sent a copy, a photostat, of these rogue papers documents by the French newspaper, and they then take it to a document examiner, Elizabeth McCarthy, Mm -hmm. previously worked in the Alger Hiss case. She examines the writing and the known writing of David Greenglass, which they have examples of from various sources, including some of the exhibits at the trial of his own mm -hmm. writing. She concludes these are definitely written by David Greenglass. Eventually, they're shown to O. John Rogue himself, and he says, yes, these appear to be documents from my file, but he still has the originals in his file. Mm -hmm. All of which kind of beg the question of how they got the papers in the case. Now, O. John Rogue made a very public statement that someone must have, quote, filched the papers from my file. These papers that appear to show that the lead witnesses are, had, did indeed fabricate yeah. their testimony, were actually lying, yeah. and maybe create some doubts of the case on the 11th hour. And indeed, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. That's one possibility. Uh, the FBI had an informant who was an informant within the Committee to Secure Justice in the Rosenberg case, uh. who said that the committee had paid $25,000 to a professional burglar Damn. to break into O. John Rogue's office and, and find these documents. I think all these things kind of sidestep the fact that, yes, it's very bad to break into an attorney's office. These are very embarrassing. They're, they're also very true in showing fabrication by yeah. David Ruth. Like... I love I love I love getting that job on the you know in the organizing committee the uh, the finding a burglar uh, job <laughs> uh, contacting burglars getting them uh, other criminals who arsonists um, uh, you know horse yeah. thieves the the D and DSA uh, steering committee okay look you have to go ahead and create a new membership we need an election committee we need a committee to really build a pool of black funds yeah to get our professional criminals to break into yeah. a law office. Yeah, it was always pretty weird from the start, but obviously that's what the FBI would love to have, right. is somehow be able to wind up the whole committee or arrest the leadership yeah. for breaking into a law office. But it also kind of reminds me a bit of like any time that something happens to Republicans, or frankly, uh, Joe Biden's also pulled this card too, mm -hmm. of when like an incriminating thing is pulled out under suspicious circumstances, yeah. they're like, hey, who yeah. broke into my laptop? Yeah. Or like, how dare the FBI come into the Trump's house? Yeah. How dare this happen to us? Yeah, we're, we're, we're barons. The Magna Carta applies to us. Yeah, yeah. As uh, David Allman like, really lays out in his book, Exoneration, the circumstances of how the rogue papers were obtained really seems to suggest that the person who sent it out was O. John Rogue himself. Mm, maybe he feels bad for having fumbled the ball uh, as we discussed in episode three two yeah i mean, I mean yeah. he was a very left-wing progressive guy at least at one time he distanced himself further and further from the communists but back in 48 he was a progressive party candidate right up there with henry wallace and all the other um, mm -hmm. kind of fellow traveler types but yeah I, I think that allman's probably right that he was struck with kind of or maybe someone working in his firm but probably him was struck with um a real crisis of conscience in knowing what he knew. Mm. That you know, he wasn't putting David on the stand and, and direct examining and asking David these questions, but he did know that some of the stuff David said was lying, and in particular mm. about Ethel.
There was no mention of her at first, and then the FBI talked to him a little bit and surprised it was there. And from the beginning, at least according to the Rogue Papers, David was saying to the FBI that there were things in their statement that he didn't remember. Mm-hmm. And there were other things that they put in the statement later on that he didn't remember at first. Mm-hmm. And they weren't true. Right. And they also knew from Ruth that uh, David just makes stuff up. Yeah. And also is a hysteric. Who at one time ran through the hallways naked saying that there were... <laughs> He had steel pants seeing elephants. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like Delirium Tremens. Was he a drinker? Actually, I don't know. If, I, I mean, he did drink on yeah. occasion, but I, I don't, I haven't seen anything that suggested that Dave was, was an alcoholic or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. It does sound like that, right? Yeah. I didn't think that. So with these papers in hand, uh, you know, originally the committee took them to Manny Block, the Rosenberg's attorney, and he immediately thought that these were dangerous and possibly a ploy to get him arrested the entire Rosenberg defense effort mm-hmm. wound up. Because documents that are from a defense attorney's confidential files don't just appear. So he, was, he thought this was a plan. Um, but when he himself confirmed that they were authentic, and when oh, John Rogue publicly confirmed they were authentic, he had no choice but to treat them as new evidence on the case that David and Ruth Greenglass had perjured themselves and that the FBI knew it. Mm-hmm. He was helped in that new appeal by another piece of evidence that the committee helped discover in the case. Now, I've talked a lot about the console table mm-hmm. and my obsession with this piece of evidence, but this is the part. In 1953, where they found the fucking console table. Mm. So at trial, just to refresh everyone's yes, memory. Yes, the console table. Just to refresh everyone's memory, Ruth Greenglass testified that at Julius and Ethel's apartment was a console table. It's a wooden table, okay? Let, not let the adjective really obscure things here. A wooden table that had a special compartment where a light existed so they could put a document in front of it, it would be lit up, and there would be an arm extension where you mm-hmm. could put a camera over it and take pictures of documents, yes. one right after the other, mm-hmm. very rapidly. In other words, that it was a spy table. And that yeah. Julius and Ethel acknowledged that it was a gift to them from the Russians for doing spy work and to help them do spy work. Mm-hmm. Julius, in his own testimony at trial, said that he had bought a table at Macy's for $21 mm-hmm. himself. It was not a gift from the Russians. It was a cheap wooden table. The right. table was just a table. Yes. For a while, no one could find this table. And I think in all honesty that Julius and Ethel for some time thought that it wouldn't be significant. It's certainly not the most significant item of testimony mm-hmm. or anything like that. However, the defense team did look for the table because if they could show that the table was just a table from Macy's yeah, that he would have bought for $21, mm-hmm then they would have a piece of physical evidence that showed that David and Ruth had lied. Yes. So they did find the table finally had been stored with a bunch of other items at uh, Julius Rosenberg's mother's apartment. And of course, when they found this and examined it, there was not a special compartment in there for a light-up bulb. Uh And as was found later on in the 1993 mock trial, Several of the witnesses, one of the witnesses of the Rosenberg case was actually a housekeeper mm-hmm. who would come by, you know, once a month, something like that, clean up the place. And she corroborated David and Ruth's testimony about there being a console table. And she said sometimes uh, Ethel and Julius would store the console table in the closet. Mm-hmm. Now, as it happens, friend of the show, Seth, mm-hmm. was in the early 90s 
a super the oh. building where wow. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg's apartment was. That's wild. And was asked by a team of lawyers working for the American Bar Association, kind of re-examining the case for this mock trial oh. that would happen then, to go into the apartment and photograph the closet area and mm -hmm. measure it and everything else. Because what they were able to show was that small closet was not big enough to store that fucking console table. Uh, it's one of the things about this sort of investigation is that you have to you have to focus on stuff like table dimensions and God knows what else. You have to really just nerd stuff up because yeah. what what is you don't know in advance what's the thing that's going to be a, a kind of immovable piece of evidence that mm -hmm. contradicts yeah. the case against you or the case for you. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was a console table. So they found the console table. And not only did they find that, they were able to show it to a guy who worked at R.H. Macy's in the 1940s when Julius said he bought the console table and it cost around $21. Mm -hmm. And he was able to testify to that and mm -hmm. write in an affidavit rather. But of course, this was all after the trial. Mm -hmm. So what we have here is two separate sources like vivid evidence of perjury new evidence in the case new shit has come to light i've got information man new shit has come to light so they they take this uh to judge kaufman um who tells them consent mm -hmm. uh, they file a motion with judge kaufman he denies the motion it takes him 15 minutes to deny the motion because he's already written his opinion denying the motion they appeal to the second circuit who also denies the motion and then they're taking it to the supreme court Mm -hmm. asking the Supreme Court to grant a stay of execution and to grant or reconsider their, their non-grant of certiorari and hear the new evidence on the case. Or, this is an alternative scenario here, to remand the case, which is to send the case back down to the lower court and force that, you know, vacate Judge Kaufman's opinion and say, Judge Kaufman, you have to consider this new evidence in mm -hmm. light of X, Y, or Z. Now, Judge Kaufman already gave an opinion. So we have this new claim before the court, is what I'm trying to say. The court doesn't hear it. Mm -hmm. And this is the Supreme Court, the state the, court? The Supreme Court decides not to hear it. They vote not to hear this new evidence claim, even with the wrong papers and even with the console table. Mm -hmm. Now they do this um, without actually hearing any argument. It's the same sort of procedural thing you were talking about before. Yeah, this is even a little bit more dismissive. So they, they hear this without any argument, and most of the argument that's, that was made to them was actually on the earlier claims and asking them to reconsider on that. Mm -hmm. But at this point, the added to the team of the Rosenberg's attorneys is a University of Chicago professor, Malcolm Sharp, who has, you know, by reading the stuff that's being put out by the committee to secure Justice Rosenberg cases, changed his mind and has thought that a major injustice may have been done here. And also fucking legend mm -hmm. that basically no one knows about or remembers anymore uh, but should be known mm. a guy named John Finnerty. yeah I don't know him yeah I didn't know him either before this case so John Finnerty was a radical labor lawyer and cr amazingly criminal lawyer who was involved in some of the biggest most controversial cases in kind of the bloodiest time for the American for American labor and for the American left, hmm. his probably his biggest case was for a guy named Tom Mooney, and I won't get into that. But basically, Tom yeah. Mooney was a very very well known left wing Irish labor leader mm -hmm. in California um, who got accused of 
bombing the 1916 Preparedness Day Parade. So it would be almost as if a very well-known, like, DSA person or a major yeah. labor leader was all of a sudden, like, arrested for the Boston Marathon Damn. bombing. He also helped defense tackle and Vizzetti. Mm. Finnerty is always described as, like, being this giant man. And so I was surprised when I actually looked at pictures of him at this time that he's, like, just a normal yeah. <laughs> Irish man. Yeah, yeah. And I can only think that that's be- it must have been because John Fennerty was such like a presence right. that people around him were just like, this guy's huge. Yeah, you run into that sometimes. You can see why because when the court kind of tells the, man- the Supreme Court, tells Emmanuel Block to to go away, John Fennerty uh, uses physical force to save mm. the Rosenbergs and Basically pounds his way through multiple U.S. marshals oh, wow. to file a motion in the best way possible, which is to yell at Supreme Court Justice Vinson huh. that he wants to file a writ of habeas corpus. Yeah. And how dare you? This is the greatest travesty unless you hear my motion right now. Oh. And this totally works. Huh. He would have been smoked today. Yeah, he absolutely would have been shot today. Yeah. But back then... You know, they'd just be like, oh, he's, you know. He's an Irish I, man. Yeah, Irish yeah. people, they get a little wild. That's what they do. We, we've let them in the country now. It's, I, it's a, I also want to believe that they're just, like, physically afraid of John Yeah, Fanny. yeah, yeah. Just be like, pa, pa. Yeah. Let me file this motion right now and be like, okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll just not vote to look at it. Uh, so he did file the habeas petition. He actually was able to argue the points that the court should grant a stay of execution. Mm-hmm at least, and maybe let the lower courts hear the evidence on this case because there's this new evidence that shows perjury. And the precedent that he argues here is the Mooney case. Hmm. Now, in the Mooney case, the chief witnesses turned out to be confirmed perjurers who eventually re- like recanted all of their statements, and that was the basis of the prosecution. Hmm. They were two guys who were trying to get the reward money. Hmm. It was offered on the preparedness day bombing, and as it happens, they gave the prosecutor the suspect that they wanted, who also happened to be causing a lot of trouble mm. with labor relations, mm. as far as they were concerned. So the Supreme Court actually issued a decision in the Mooney case called In Re Mooney, which is in the matter of Tom Mooney, that says if the if the case against you is based on subordination of perjury. So perjury that the prosecutor or as a member of their team, in this case like the FBI, asked for and received, then that's a denial of your right to due process. You didn't get a fair trial and the, the verdict has to be gotten rid of. Yeah, you seems start over. pretty fundamental. Seems obvious. Yeah. So we argued, this shows perjury. It shows that the prosecutor and the FBI suborned it. Mm-hmm. New trial. Yeah. The console table that sold the Macy's. Yeah. The table was a table. And David Greenglass is hysteric and a liar. Yeah. Frankfurter, Burton, and Justice Black voted to grant a stay of execution so the lower courts could hear this argument. Mm-hmm. Douglas, mm-hmm. hero of liberals, mm-hmm. votes against, saying Oof. Mooney doesn't apply. Oof. He, was t- in talking to Justice Frankfurter, says that, no, it's not enough to suborn perjury. You have to actually manufacture the evidence. And I don't really know what that means. Yeah. Like, so it's it, unless, like, the prosecutor, like, gave birth to David Greenglass <laughs> and, like, programmed his mind. Yeah. Or maybe, like, hypnotize him in the state right. of life. Yeah. Get a, get a hypnotist. Like, unless he did some MK Ultra right. stuff on Which David Greenglass. They're a little like, too early. Yeah. He, uh, it doesn't apply. So he votes against. 
-hmm. No stay of execution. And so it looks like the execution is going to proceed. So there's only a couple of days left at this point mm -hmm. in the legal process. Now, parallel with this, you have people trying to put pressure on, on President Eisenhower mm -hmm. to grant clemency, which means I'm not making a judgment on like the merits of the case or whatever. I'm just changing the penalty because I can do it because the people of the United States elect me. Yeah. But this is the last chance on this case. And at this point, Manny Block and other attorneys are throwing everything they can. The judges mm -hmm. are basically picking up the phone and hanging up, essentially. Yeah. Picking it up and respectfully listening to it and then hanging up the phone <laughs> after saying denied. But kind of out of nowhere, you have this weird bolt out of the blue argument by an eccentric country lawyer mm. from Tennessee. Okay. And I like to think of this as like the Shishin Lu like dimension <laughs> shard that like yeah. comes into the case and all of a sudden a lawyer is like snatching the heart out of this case. Yeah, like a sofon. Everyone's going back and forth on issues of whether there's a sufficient basis for saying that there was perjury, whether the prosecutor knew about it, whether oh. the prosecutor did misconduct, whether the judge did misconduct. By the way, Frankfurter thought and repeatedly said in private that he thought the judge and the prosecutor are example. Um, we're guilty of the worst misconduct on this case. Mm. Fike Farmer, which sounds like a fake name. Who's yeah. named Fike? Who, who indeed? Um, no, I literally, can you think of another person in I've, all of I've human history? I've heard last names. I've, the, seen the, I've seen the last name Fike. So it might be, it might be a family name. Yeah. So maybe they, they, they made the last name the first name. Yeah. The first name became. Fike Farmer, the aforementioned eccentric Tennessee lawyer is really concerned about atomic energy. He reads lots of things on atomic energy. He's an atomic energy nerd, mm. an atom head. Yeah. Um, he notices that the indictment is under the Espionage Act, mm. which everyone knows is from the Espionage Act of 1917. As it happens, Congress passed a little thing called the Atomic Energy Act in mm -hmm. 1946. Under that act, it says that if you were to if you take any other documents or atomic secrets, it specifies its own standards for how to prove the case mm -hmm. and what the penalty is. And they're not the same as the Espionage Act standard. Mm -hmm. So under that Atomic Energy Act, if you take any atomic secrets, you can only be found guilty if the prosecutors proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you took those atomic secrets with intent to injure the United States. Mm -hmm. And there can't be a death penalty imposed on you if you took those atomic secrets without a jury recommending it. In other words, the judge can't do it like Judge Kaufman did. Yeah. So on both points, if they were tried under the Atomic Energy Act of 46, the mm -hmm. Rosenbergs at least couldn't be sentenced to death and probably couldn't even be found guilty. The United States and the Soviet Union were allies. Yeah. There's no testimony that they intended to injure the United right. States. So they, they were like trying to get the atomic secrets. And, and the Atomic Energy Act provisions, because they came later, would supersede the 1917 Espionage Act. At least in this instance. The mm -hmm. problem is the Rosenbergs were accused of doing what they did mm -hmm. in 1945. Yes. But here's where Fike Farmer has another parry. The trial was for a conspiracy yes. to commit espionage that lasted from 44 to 1950. Uh, okay. So some of it is after 1946. And in fact, the bulk of the testimony is about things that the Rosenbergs did, like telling Greenglass he needs to leave the country and giving him money and talking to David about this or that. Mm -hmm. That happens 
after 1946. So, Fike Farmer at first calls Judge Kaufman, who says some variation of, who the fuck are you? Mm-hmm. I'm not listening to any dumb hicks. Yeah. Um, and your motion is denied, obviously. And using his own money and uh, a friend, a, a friend of his, uh, or a civil libertarian from LA named David Marshall also joins in mm-hmm. on this. He marches off to the Supreme Court uh, and also arrives there about the same time as the uh, assembly of defense attorneys who are also trying to make these arguments for the new evidence claim. Mm-hmm. His claim is denied, although the, the court like pointedly like has finds it very hard to understand. Because it's kind of weird for someone to come in and be like, well, actually, if you look at the law here, yeah. uh, not only could they not be sentenced to death, it looks like they're not guilty. It has nothing to do with the evidence on the case, right. nothing to do with the trial conduct. It's just like, whoops, this entire thing just was, forgot about the law. was wrong from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Just whoops. Nobody, you all messed nobody, up. Nobody wants and to hear that. No one wants to admit that you've been like just circling around for three years mm. under the wrong law. But Fike Farmer manages to get Justice Douglas... Mm-hmm. who has just voted to not grant a stay of execution, mm-hmm. to grant a stay of execution uh, on the basis of this yes. new weird claim that right. he wouldn't grant on the new evidence claim. Right, because it's not new evidence it's, it, that implies that he believes what communists have to say about things. It's proceduralism, which you gotta, gotta be procedural. Judge Douglas like has a story that he granted this stay and then he uh, was arriving at, at a train station right afterwards in Pennsylvania, and then hearing that the, the, the liberal lie in Justice Douglas uh, granted this stay, a group of Eastern European miners picked him up and carried him aloft in oh, the wow. crowd. Yeah, everyone else says this is a lie. Yeah, if anything, well, yeah. Now, do I believe a group of Eastern European miners would have been like pro-Rosenberg? Yes. Do mm-hmm. I think that Justice Douglas was yeah, recognized by yeah. anyone? Random miners, yeah. And that they will be waiting at the train station. Yeah. As as miners do, just wait at the right. train station. Yes. Yeah, so that's Supreme Court justice? No. Preferred minor hangout. Yeah. So Douglas granted the stay on this question, but the head of Harry Truman's and now Dwight Eisenhower's <laughs> law firm, Justice Vinson, uh, the old battle axe, hears about this and is enraged because that that last set of arguments that they heard with John Finnerty pushing U.S. Marshals aside and making his arguments on the basis of the Mooney case, which he was the lawyer on, mm-hmm. and all that argument about that. After that last denial of state, the court went on recess. And they're supposed to all be on recess, not hearing cases, not doing any business, until next October. Mm-hmm. So with this stay granted, and with the court dismissed, theoretically, the Rosenbergs should be alive, at least until right. October, when the Supreme Court can hear argument on the stay. Mm-hmm. But Judge Vinson doesn't accept that, mm-hmm. and he orders all of the justices back, which might actually be totally illegal. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not been done again, but he brought back the full court uh, involuntarily and voted. Douglas had to leave the train station <laughs> off, the, off the backs of the miners. Yeah, the judges come back, and four judges vote to continue the stay. Mm-hmm. But as I said before, you need four judges to, to grant a hearing for the appeal of the Supreme Court, but you need a majority mm. of five in order to not kill someone. Mm. 
uh, or at least to continue not killing someone when you have the full court mm -hmm. and panel. So five judges vote to get rid of Justice Douglas' stay, and the execution date is on. Now, uh, as Michael Mirapol told us in our, our episode with him, he has it on good authority, and uh, this lines up with what's been found by that Frankfurter biographer that I mentioned, that uh, in a phone call by people who know, uh, they asked not to vacate Justice Douglas' stay and allow the Rosenbergs to live, and that Just Vincent told them they have to fry. The majesty of the law, folks. Well, presumably, uh, you know, Dwight David Eisenhower, he could have <laughs> saved the day. Uh, in, indeed. So this this gets to the uh, the clemency petition. So clemency, of course, is when a governor or the president, the chief executive in an area, for whatever reason that they state, maybe just mercy, maybe mitigating evidence like the circumstances of the case, decides to change the sentence or to issue a full pardon in certain cases. So the Committee to Secure Justice the Rosenberg case had really been reaching out to congressmen and well-known people like writers, actors, and mm -hmm. everything, scientists who mm -hmm. are familiar with how the atomic bomb was made right? For, to urge clemency on the case. And a lot of people fell in behind the petition for clemency and, and wrote in lots of cables and telegrams mm -hmm. were sent to the White House and, and so on. For example, Albert Einstein said, my conscience er compels me to urge you to commute the death sentence of Julius and Atha Rosenberg. Mm. Um, Harold Uri, as I said before, who observed the trial, also wrote in. Uh, also, people like W.B. Du Bois, Nelson Algren, uh, the writer Izzy I. F. Stone, mm. uh, Walden Frank, um, Dashiell Hammett, oh, yeah. the king, the yeah. legend. Um, yeah. Actors and singers like Ozzie Davis, Paul Robeson, Ruby Dee, uh, Gail Sondergaard, Howard De Silva. And then scientists like E.U. Condon, Philip Morrison, who also worked on the Manhattan Project, mm -hmm. Gene Weltfish, Linus Pauling, another physicist, I believe, mm -hmm. artists like Rockwell Kent, Robert Guafney, uh, and Pablo fucking Picasso. Huh. Well, you could see how, you know, I mean, who knows what Eisenhower would have thought because he was something of a Sphinx figure, but you could see Dulles or somebody looking at that list and say, ah, oh, all the usual suspects. Yeah, and exactly, and that's exactly how they denounced him, too. Yeah. There, there were something like 300 different ministers mm -hmm. and rabbis who also urged clemency, but this really the surprise one for me was behind the scenes Joe McCarthy huh. said he was in favor of clemency. Wow. Was afraid of going public on it. Huh. Yes. Why? Because, it, and they, Emily and David Allman actually found that they were able to get a lot of support for not executing the Rosenbergs from congressmen, but all of them were afraid to go public. No, I mean, why, did, to, why was McCarthy in favor of clemency? That's a little unclear. I, I, I think it was largely because of the death penalty aspect of it. Huh. It was Catholic. Yeah. The Pope huh. reportedly came out in favor of clemency. But then the New York Times came out and said that the Pope wasn't in favor of clemency. But then he came out with a statement saying he urged mercy in yeah, the case. Yeah. Uh, so with all this in mind, uh, Eisenhower rejected doing clemency. And in his statements, he kind of just confesses how little he knew or cared about anything on the case. This yeah. is at a time when there's round-the-clock pickets at the White House. And I oh, can yeah. just see Eisenhower look, looking outside me like, ah, communist. Yeah. So he said, quote, all rights of appeal were exercised and the conviction of the trial court was upheld after a full judicial review, including that of the highest court in the land, even though the Supreme Court literally said in their final opinion, we have never considered the merits of this case. Mm. We just never heard it. Yeah. 
But they voted not to hear, which is good enough. Yeah. Continuing with Eisenhower, I have made a careful examination of this case bulletin and am satisfied that the two individuals have been accorded their full measure of justice. There has been neither new evidence nor has there been mitigating circumstances which would justify altering this decision. And I have determined that it is my duty in the interest of the people of the United States not to set aside the verdict of their representatives. So literally says that the Supreme Court heard it and says that there's no new or mitigating evidence, even though there was new evidence and the Supreme Court never heard it. Mm. In the cabinet meeting that was held close in time to his first denial of clemency, he stated that all the officials that considered the case were unanimous, and even though they weren't, as we know from the Supreme Court, and that the reversal of the verdict when the case was so, uh, quote, clear-cut would, mm-hmm. be, would be negative. In private, however, he opined that Ethel Rosenberg was actually, like, the mastermind. Huh. Which I just think is the most anti-Semitic part of this case. He's just, he's like, <laughs> yeah. Eisenhower, the, the chief wasp of the United right. States. The chief German of the United States. Yes, the chief German of the United States was basically like, ah, uh, you know how those Jewish women are. They yeah, always find their husbands. And, and, oh, my God. Honey, I don't want to go out spying tonight. You go out spying. Oh, so help me. Um, is he the only person who thinks that? Because I've never heard anyone advance that opinion before. No, so even Judge Kaufman in his, uh, in his statement on the case mm-hmm. said that Julius was clearly like the, the mastermind here, but Ethel was a full partner because she's three years his senior, uh-huh. or four years his senior. Anyways, there is no, there's no way he got this from Jagger Hoover yeah. of the FBI, who was recommending that Ethel not be executed, and kind of walk that back a yeah. bit. But he recommended to Kaufman that she not be executed. Right. He wasn't getting this from anyone. There was even, you know, the national security people who, who knew in some dissembled sense about Venona, although Eisenhower himself did not know about the Venona project. Mm-hmm. He just knew that there was sources that they had. Yeah. Um, were recommending Ethel not to be executed. Mm. Um, because they knew that she, they didn't have evidence that she did anything. Hmm. Shades of uh, Eddie Slovak. Because Eisenhower was in charge of that, too. Was Eddie Slovak? Eddie Slovak was the only American executed for desertion during World War II. And he was a minor cause celebrity as well. He was like this, you know, he was a drafty. He was like an ex-con, you know, kind of a just a ne'er-do-well who, like, you know... Was my I don't know a ton about the case, but like there was no really good military reason to execute him. They they you know thousands of GIs deserted and, yeah. and weren't executed. Yeah, what made him special? In nothing. nothing. They just got him, and he didn't have any defense. And Eisenhower and the rest just decided to make an example of him uh, during you know the Battle of the Bulge. So, so in that fine tradition, he does not commute the sentence and of course he's the he's really kind of like the last appeal because he's the only one who could permanently stop the death sentence once it's commuted he can't reinstate it mm-hmm. or whatever so so at sing sing yeah. prison in what's called the death house they're, mm-hmm. they're segregated death row section uh julius and apple who haven't seen each other it's obviously segregated wings for men and women at this point they're uh their rabbi who's kind of consulting with them in the last moments the, the government's in communication with them to and he's imploring Julius to name names hmm. to try to get a stay of execution straight from the president. Implores hmm. Ethel to name names. 
She defiantly tells him, I am innocent, I have no names. But the FBI passes along questions, uh, both to the warden and others who are in communication with Julius, uh, a final set of questions in the hopes that in these final hours, he'll break. Mm. And one of the questions is essentially, I think, a kind of confession of murder mm. on their part, or what will be, which is, was your wife cognizant of your activities? Mm. They've convicted this person. They fought all of the appeals. Mm. And at the end of the day, the FBI, the investigating agency on the case, is just saying, hey, um, honestly, we don't know. <laughs> did your wife know what you even did? Because, mm -hmm. I mean... Like, yeah, I mean, she's here in the in the death house. We're but... about to kill her because we said not only did she know... We've, we've claimed in every court in this country, not only did she know what you did, right. but that she did it with you. But we know that was all a lie, so did mm. she, just tell us the truth. Did she yeah. actually know what she did? <sighs> They're originally scheduled to be executed at 11 p.m. on Thursday, June 18th, their 14th wedding anniversary. Um, the, when the Supreme Court overturned Justice Douglas's day, that was moved to 8.31 p.m. on the 19th, which would have been past sundown and on Shabbat. Oh, sorry, it was originally scheduled for 11 p.m. on mm -hmm. June 19th, that Friday, which would have been Shabbat. Uh, the government then moved it up um, to 8.04 p.m., so just before sundown. Mm -hmm. And Julius was strapped to the big wooden chair at uh, Sing Sing Prison and killed with three shocks of 2,000 volts. It was pronounced dead at 8 or 6 p.m. Uh, five minutes later, they, having removed Julius's body, Ethel was walked in the room not knowing her husband was already dead and was strapped to the same chair. And three electric shocks later, her heart was still beating. Huh. It was a botched execution. Huh. And so they administered more shocks, and she died. Huh. Um, they held a memorial service with 12,000 mourners. Huh. It's pretty barbaric by itself. The United States even never operated the electric chair, which was a colossal case of capitalist fraud. Mm. Thomas Edison wanted to show that um, alternating current was very deadly. Yeah so that people shouldn't use Nikolai Tesla's things. Uh -huh. And therefore, he operated an electric chair using alternating current. The human body is not a natural transmitter of electricity. There is no exact voltage uh -huh. that suddenly, suddenly and painlessly stops the human heart. Yeah. And accordingly, many executions are botched executions with the electric chair because uh -huh. there's no telling at any voltage if the person's heart will painlessly stop after a volt or two or whether they'll end up being cooked uh -huh. inside. It is, as Justice Brennan later pronounced, simply burning at the stake with modern technology. Uh -huh. And because we often or at least back then, they often wouldn't see the effects going on inside. Mm -hmm. They could shield themselves from thinking that they were doing uh, essentially a, a brutal torture. And pause for a second on, on that one. It's, a, it's an odd point in the presentation here to, to say any note of, of optimism, but I'd like to introduce uh, a counterfactual, which is always brought up, and usually for the wrong reasons on this case, which is what if Julius had talked? What if he started saying, I did this and that with Joel Barr and William Pearl and other 
former CCNY classmates who he had gotten older with and had laughed and had struggled against fascism with and had shared stories uh, during the war with and had enlisted in this enterprise to a great degree. What if he had named names? And therefore, what if there wasn't an international movement to stop the executions of the Rosenbergs? What if he had just broken? And I think we actually have our answer of what would have happened because that's what David Greenglass did. David Greenglass took the choice of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to become a martyr. I'm going to make the, the smart decision. I'm going to, I, I like my odds. I'll take the prison time. I'll take the reduced sentence and name names. And it only took a month or two before they had David Greenglass just making up stories, about mm. people, where they had him making up evidence. Mm-hmm. Even when he would voice that, even when David Greenlass voiced that Ethel had no part in this, eventually the, the pressure of a potential death sentence, a potential life sentence, never being able to see his wife or kids again, was enough to make him make up a story against his own sister. Mm-hmm. And when, if in that possible world, Julius or Ethel had broken and named those other people, mm-hmm. then the circle just expands wider. Mm-hmm. It's like a chain reaction with neutrons bouncing on other atoms and other neutrons until you have an explosion. Yeah. How many people, hundreds of people, could have potentially been rounded up if mm-hmm. you just had such a ethicsless prosecution, mm. getting person after person to collaborate in manufacturing? And to the extent there seems to be any kind of sane motivation here on the part of people like Kaufman, it does seem to have been precisely that, to uh, hold this over the head of these two people so that they could name names and round up more, more leftists, more communists, and, you know, do God knows what with them. Yeah, I mean, we have some idea of what they would do, even though it's very speculative. Emily and David Allman pointed out that under the McCarran Internal Security Act, mm. the government of the United States was already building internment camps because if and when communists could be determined to be such a a collaborator enemy like the Japanese previously during World War II, the pressure to round them up and detain them on the basis of membership in communist organizations and quote-unquote front groups would be enough that they could be put in there. And Emily David Ullman actually said that at one point they found out their prospective numbers, that they had talked to um, ex-prison guards who were being recruited by federal recruiters to work in the camps, but with no collaboration with the authorities, mm-hmm. with no naming names, um, that circle couldn't be expanded. Yeah, no naming names and the creation of a grassroots movement around them, proof that even if they couldn't save the Rosenbergs, that there would be substantial public backlash uh, to high-handed behavior on the part of the government, even towards communists, that there was some limit to the American people's um, ability or or credulity uh, when it came to going along with the Red Scare. Yeah. And I I mean, I think there's there's always like a little bit of an element of like LARPing when people claim a legacy, a -hmm. political legacy on the left. But I would say that the legacy of this independent movement to save the Rosenbergs, kind of resist this hysteria, is 
is one that forms our consciousness even mm. to some extent, even if we don't know it. Right. Before this, there was you, you couldn't simply go up and say the FBI, not, not just some like local police department mm. or a local prosecutor, but the FBI, the clean agency, they wouldn't manufacture a case right. to advance an agenda of breaking the left. Mm-hmm. But after that, that becomes the left suspicion. Right. Presumptive suspicion. And it gets confirmed by things like the Medea break-in. And, yeah. you know, it gets confirmed over and over again. Yeah. So, you know, in many respects, I've, I've heard it said that the American left's legacy is one largely of defeat. There's some truth to that, like there is of most cliches. But I actually think that there's a certain extent to which our legacy is snatching some, some sort of victory from these fights that we have against overwhelming odds. Uh, the odds, the, the, the whole story of the Rosenbergs is a story of decks being laboriously stacked against them. And, you know, they did, they were killed. That was a failure, you know, whether it, it's a culpable one on the part of the American left or not, but, or, or not even but. And that failure led to the development of consciousness and of actual social forces that would go forward to kind of carry on the struggle, broadly speaking. And at the end of the day, that's what a force that is overwhelmingly outnumbered, overwhelmingly outgunned, needs more than anything, is just to stay in existence and and find its opportunities. Stay in existence. Talk to your friends. Go out and do things. Touch grass. You know, if if there's any... There, I feel like there's a lovely example from Julius and Athel in their days that when the left was very ascendant and also enduring from when it was not, that they stayed close with their friends and comrades. And to mm-hmm. them, it was, a, it was a joyous struggle in which we're all involved. Yeah. So turn off your podcast, except ours. Go hang out with your friends. Go hang out with your friends. Yeah, have a drink. Yeah, it's good. Enjoy. Yeah. And on that note, thank you again, listeners. Um, also, thank you to our... Sources for this episode, as I said, that legal paper taking great cases, Emily and David Allman's exoneration, Walter and Miriam Schneer's invitation to an inquest and final verdict. And for this episode in particular, on the legal questions, Fatal Error by Joseph Charlotte, criminally out of print, as well as Michael and Robert Mirapol's We Are Your Sons. Thanks again, listeners. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye-bye.